This is History West Midlands. As Britain emerged into the mid-20th century, change was everywhere. Cities were shifting from smog-filled industrial hubs to more efficient centres of commerce. And despite the country once again being blighted by war, society was moving towards a more modern, forward-thinking era. But change was not limited to ordinary men and women. Under the surface, the criminal underbelly too was evolving, anxious to exploit new opportunities. And so, in the third instalment of his best-selling series, historian Carl Chin examines this new era in the landscape of Britain's gangs. After the violent reign of the Peaky Blinders, the intimidation of the Birmingham gang and frequent gang wars up and down the country, from the wreckage, new groups emerged with novel ways of making money and causing trouble. And, like those who came before them, they left havoc and destruction in their wake. Carl discusses their stories with History West Midlands publisher Mike Gibbs. Carl, I can't believe that people don't know who the Peaky Blinders are. But before we start talking about uh, the gangs of the post-First World War period, can you just recap for us the Peaky Blinders story? Well, as we know, the Peaky Blinders has become an international phenomenon because of a powerful, pulsating TV series. But there were real Peaky Blinders. And they basically were the hooligans of Birmingham. That term itself, hooligan, comes into the national press in 1898 and it refers to the men and views of London who were involved in violence, most of whom belonged to backstreet gangs. In Birmingham, the backstreet gangs were originally called sloggers. It's from an old word to slog, to hit with a fierce blow. In Manchester and Salford, they were called scuttlers. But from 1890, the sloggers of Birmingham were mostly known as Peaky Blinders. Now, in the popular mythology, they are so named because they are supposed to have sewn a disposable safety razor blade into the peaks of their flat cap. And in a fight, they whipped it off their head and slashed it across the forehead of their enemies, hence causing blood to go into their eyes and blind them. It's a myth. Never happened. The Peaky Blinders were so named after a fashion. In 1890, the first reference to the Peaky Blinders, the press are talking about the fashions of these backstreet gangsters. They wore bell-bottom trousers, tight to the knee and very broad, from the knee downwards. Sometimes they would have pearl buttons down the front of the bell part of the trousers. They'd wear mufflers or daffs like a, a silk scarf tied round the neck and doubled up in a knot at the front called a choker. They had a very tight haircut, almost like prison fashion. But they also liked a quiff of hair coming down at the front and they liked to show it off. So the early Peaky Blinders actually didn't wear flat caps. They wore what was called a billycock. It was a working man's bowler hat. And they would pull the brim of the billycock over one eye to allow the quiff to be shown. Hence the peak blinded the eye. When the flat cap came in as the fashion from the later 1890s, they did the same with the flat cap. Now, why did they have short hair? because they like to show off to their friends and girlfriends especially the marks of their fights with other Peaky Blinders and the police. The strike of the baton 
or of the stave of the police on their skulls, the hit of the buckled belt. That was their most terrible weapon. An old-fashioned thick leather belt with heavy brass buckles wrapped around the wrist, held together, and then buckled with about eight inches free, and they would slash with the buckle. They also used their boots, hobnail boots, knives, and other weapons. These were vicious, vile men whom we should not admire. They preyed upon the poor amongst whom they lived. They baited the police, as the local newspapers called it, and they fought each other. And they were really active before the First World War. Yeah, the Peaky Blinders were active in the 1890s and the turn of the 20th century. By the late 19th century, the backstreet gang problem in Birmingham, Manchester and Salford was rampant. And in 1899, the Birmingham Watch Committee, the councillors that run the police, appointed a new chief constable, Charles Horton Rafter. He was from the Royal Irish Constabulary. He was a Protestant from Belfast, but his deputy in Birmingham was Michael McManus, a Catholic from Mayo, who had risen through the ranks in Birmingham and was famous for riding around the streets on a white horse. Rafter realised that things had to change. Policemen were being killed. Several were killed in the period. Lots more were badly injured and had to leave the force. Local people who, for some slight reason, offended the Peaky Blinders, were beaten and abused. So Rafter embarked on a very rapid recruitment campaign. The Birmingham police force was massively on demand. And the story in the police was that Rafter asked three things of his men. Can you read? Can you write? Can you fight? Now, Rafter wanted these men to be at least five foot ten and strong. They introduced a physical training regime for the policemen. They would only go out in twos, and they took the fight to the Peaky Blinders. There's very little evidence about it, but there's hints here and there in the police records, which I've looked at in the West Midlands Police Museum and elsewhere. So, stronger policing, stronger sentencing. You could be sent down for a month for attacking a policeman or two months, and you could pay a fine to get off. That ended. Rafter said to the magistrates, any attack on any policeman is a prison sentence. Any serious attack, they have to go down for a long time. That gives confidence to the people in poor areas to support the police. Before that, they weren't supporting the police. They were scared. And the next factor that's important in the disappearance of the Peaky Blinders is organic. Youth clubs. Why don't politicians today realise you have to invest in poorer neighbourhoods in youth clubs and youth facilities? Because what's happening in the late 19th century is a few socially concerned clergymen and women are starting football clubs. And one of them, Father Pinchard, in St Jude's Parish, Right in the heart of Birmingham, one of the poorest starts a boxing club. So too does Father Jay in the Old Nickel in Bethnal Green in London. High Church of England men starting boxing clubs. This appeals to the lot of the lads. Football clubs, boxing clubs, youth facilities. And on top of that, not only for the lads, but for young women as well, the cinema becomes really popular. And just as the picky blinders are disappearing, the craze for the pictures takes off. So there's all these different factors, policing, sentencing, witnesses coming forward and facilities being provided. And by 1910, the Birmingham Mail is writing about the Peaky Blinders in the past tense. They're gone by the First World War. And then the First World War disrupts everything, changes Birmingham immeasurably. Yeah. And how did that affect the gangs? Very interesting, the First World War and its effects on the gangs. Birmingham in the late 19th century was one of the most violent cities in England. By the 1920s, it's become one of the more peaceful cities in England. There's still a, a thugs. There's still horrible men. So what happens to the Peaky Blinders? Well, let me give you an example. A man called Lightfoot, Henry Lightfoot. 
1895, he's the only individual I've come across who's actually called a Peaky Blinder in court when he's sentenced for going up and down her street, hitting innocent passers-by with a massive stick. And then he attacks a policeman. He joins up at the age of 41 in the First World War. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to join up. But old habits die hard. And he gets thrown out for insubordination and threatening a non-commissioned officer. He joins up again. And in 1916, on the second day of the Battle of the Somme, he's badly wounded. He leaves the army a different man. This happened to lots of men. Either they were killed or they came back changed men. Not more violent, but actually less violent. However, some of the Peaky Blinders, ex-Peaky Blinders, went on to form the first major gang that operated on a national scale in England, the Birmingham Gang. From the 1870s, gangs of pickpockets and rogues from Birmingham and elsewhere terrorised the racecourses of England. They were badly underpoliced, and they would turn up these pickpockets in groups of six and seven, and they would literally rule the roost at racecourses. And because of the railway system, those from Birmingham were able to travel further and further afield. And in the 1890s, there's a big outcry in the national press about rogues of the racecourse. And one really astute commentator said, in the flat racing season, which is the most popular form of racing, rather than racing over the jumps, and the flat racing season really is in the spring and summer, senior Peaky Blinders go on their travels across the country. What attracts them? What attracts them to the racecourse is money, bookmakers. There's no checks. You've got to pay cash. So punters are carrying cash. Bookmakers are carrying cash. So there's people that can be turned over. They will have their pockets picked. Sometimes they'll turn them upside down and empty their pockets. Anybody tries to help, there's four or five others that will come in and in the old Birmingham phrase, duff them up, beat them up badly. So there's a lot of money to be made. They're bone idle. They're lazy men. They don't want to work. But in the early 20th century, it becomes a little bit more organised. And a few ex-Peaky Blinders emerge as leaders of what was then called the Brummagem Boys, a loose collection of these racing rogue gangs from Birmingham, these little gangs of six men. They were brought together in a stronger entity known as the Birmingham Gang by a man called Billy Kimber. Not a Londoner, as in the series, but a big, burly Brummy from the Summer Lane neighbourhood. How did he become the leader? Well, he was a pickpocket himself. He had been a Peaky Blinder. He travels the country. He becomes the main leader of the Brummagem boys, turning it into the Birmingham gang because of the support of his brother Joe, another hard man, a man called George White, another hard man, and various other ex-Peaky Blinders who are tough and are racing rogues. And he's also clever. He's got a brain. He's not just got brawn. He's a vicious fighter. I've spoke to people who knew him and knew of him and how he would really put you away with one massive punch to the solar plexus. But he's got a brain. He realises that by the early 20th century, certainly by the First World War, the Birmingham gang is ruling the roost in the racecourses of the Midlands and the North. They're pickpocketing at will. They're extorting protection money from the bookmakers. Pay up or you get duffed up. But where are more racecourses? Where's more money? Down south. And about 1911, he abandons his poor wife in Birmingham, Maud, to live and die in poverty. She dies in 1926 and is buried in a pauper's grave. His two daughters with her, they live in poverty. And their descendants are still bitter about the way that their great-grandmother and their grandmothers were treated by Billy Kimber. He goes down south and he settles in London, pals up with George Brummy Sage, 
from Camden Town, a top London hooligan. And this is where he's really clever. He also pals up with the McDonald's, some of the leading, if not the leading figures in the Elephant Boys from South London. And they start to take over the racecourse rackets down south. There's other gangs as well from the East End, but this alliance of the Birmingham gang and tough guys from North London, around Camden Town and around the Elephants of Castle, they're the top dogs. Then the First World War comes. Racing is virtually stopped. Billy Kimber joins up. He's a tough man, but he's not brave. He deserts. I find Billy Kimber in Ireland. Why? He and George Sage go there. Racing continued in Ireland. <laughs> Kimber gets arrested for pickpocketing at a railway station on the day of Leopardstown races. Gets away with it. Comes back to England. Well, he gets fined and then he's arrested for being a deserter. 1919. The war's over. You get all these men who've survived. Soldiers, sailors, huge numbers of them, with their gratuities, their payoffs from the army and navy. A lot of them go home, but a lot of them want to enjoy life. Attendances at sports boom, especially at racing. And there's massive crowds. This draws in all the ruffians that there can be. And there's a free-for-all. In the Midlands of the North, the Birmingham gang take over again. They rule with a rod of iron. Nobody dare challenge them. Any other pickpockets have to pay tribute to the Birmingham gang. And Kimber spots an opportunity down south to take over with his London allies. And in 1920, that's what they do. But that then leads to a vicious gang war in 1921. And in my opinion, that gang war leads to organised criminal gangs in London. You describe that legacy in your second book. Yeah, Peaky Blinders, the legacy. So look at that gang war of 1921, fought between the Birmingham gang and the Sabini gang. Now... What happens in March 1921, a Jewish bookmaker called Alfie Solomon, not Solomon's as in the series, is standing on his stool taking bets at a meeting down south. Now, I interviewed Alfie Solomon's real brother in 1987 in a pub in London. His betting name was Lewis, because as he said, who's going to bet with me in the 1920s with my Jewish name because of the racism at the time? Sadly, this is another factor we have to take into account. Real name was Simeon Solomon. And he said, you come down here and we're starting to take money from us. And they beat up my brother badly. I found a description of the attack on the real Alfie Solomon. He's standing on his stool and a horrible, nasty man from the Birmingham gang called Thomas Armstrong walked past and wanted a bet on a horse on the nod. That meant he wasn't going to pay. But if it won, he wants his payment, doesn't he? If it loses, he's never going to pay. Alfie Solomon says, no, I'm not taking the bet. It won. I think it was called Morganatic Marriage, 11 to 4 shot. And he walks back looking for his money, and Solomon refuses. And a man who was a boxing referee wrote, the Birmingham Thug took off his heavy pair of field glasses, binoculars, smashed them into the face of Alfie Solomon, who fell backwards, his face a crumpled, bloody mess, and then he stamped on Alfie Solomon's face. Armstrong then went on to beat up another Jewish bookmaker so badly that the poor man later died. Armstrong was had up for manslaughter, but he got away with it. And as Mrs. Jacobs, the widow of the poor Jewish bookmaker, said, he's a very dangerous man, Mr. Armstrong. Nobody's going to speak against him. Now, what happened then was what Alfie Solomon's brother told me about. Alfie Solomon turned for help to the power of the East End Jewish underworld. A man called Edward Emanuel. Very little's been written about him previously, but I look at him in quite great detail in The Legacy. And he starts out as a thug, but like Kimber, he's got a brain, but actually he's even cleverer than Kimber. 
and he wants to take over the rackets down south. Now, what are the rackets? So a bookmaker stands on a stall. You want to stand on that stall? Two and sixpence, 12 and a half pence per race. Let's say six races. That's 15 shillings. At a time when a skilled man would be lucky to earn two and a half quid a week. You've got a chalkboard, which you write on the board the names of the runners and the odds. Stick a chalk each race, two and six, 12 and a half pence. After each race, you've got to rub them off to put up the runners in the next race. So the gangs come along with a bucket of water and a sponge. Two and sixpence for the sponge, two and sixpence for the bucket of water each race. It's a lot of money. You're looking at 10 shillings, 50 pence a race, six races, three quid. A big meeting, there might be 150 bookmakers. Sometimes the main gang leaders might be taking home between 50 and 100 pound a day. One of the troops might be taking home three or four pound a day. So Edward Emmanuel wants to go legitimate. And what he wants to do is set up a printing company. So instead of them just chalking up the runners, he would print racing lists once he found out what horses want to run a day or two before. And he would then charge money for those racing lists. But he can't do that. He can't go legitimate. He can't sell these racing lists till the Birmingham game's gone. He now sees his opportunity. The Jewish bookmakers have been picked on even more by the Birmingham gang simply because they're Jewish. The anti-Semitism is absolutely disgusting and virulent. So he's got his own gang of Jewish tearaways from the East End, from the Whitechapel area, but he knows he needs more backup. So he calls in an up-and-coming young gangster, Anglo-Italian, called Darby Sabini. Real name, Ottavio Sabini. How do they get to know each other? Or well, I found that in the First World War, Darby Sabini is a minder, a doorman, a spieler's. A spieler is a Yiddish word for an illegal gambling club. Edward Emmanuel is the king of the spielers. So, in my opinion, that's how they must have met. Darby Sabini is from Little Italy, Saffron Hill area of Clerkenwell. He's Anglo-Italian. Now, everybody thinks he's Sicilian. And there's always talk about the Mafia coming over. It never happened. He doesn't speak Italian. He's born in England. His mum was English and his father came over as a child. Not from Sicily, from Northern Italy. He's a tough man. He's been a boxer and he trains others, youngsters. He's got his brother, Joe. He's got his younger brother, Harry Boy. He's known as Harry Boy because he's the boy of the family. He's also got his great friend, Angelo Giannicoli, English name, Georgie Langham. They come in with their Anglo-Italian mob, but they also bring in a few really tough men of solely English heritage. Chief amongst them, Big Alf White. He will become prominent later on. And they come together with this big force, Anglo-Jews, Anglo-Italians, and solely English, to form a powerful gang to combat the Birmingham gang. And throughout the spring and summer of 1921, there is terrible violence on the race courses. But eventually, the Birmingham gang has to move back to the Midlands of the North, a truce is called. Lots of the Birmingham gang are arrested and sent down. They lose some of their most violent, fierce and vicious fighters. And then Edward Emmanuel pulls a masterstroke. He forms an organisation called the Bookmakers and Backers Protection Association with some of the leading bookmakers from down south. And they get the support of the police down south, particularly the Metropolitan Police and the racecourse authorities. And guess what? They hire Darby Sabini and his leading men, Al White and his brothers, Sabini's brothers, they hire them as stewards. Five pound a day, a lot of money, wasn't it? So now the Birmingham gang's got a problem. Their opposition has been legitimised. There's a lot more I can go into there. Billy Kimber was shot. He hates Alfie Solomon. He's shot by Alfie Solomon. He calls him a terrible names, anti-Semitic names. But basically, the Birmingham gang moves back to the Midlands and the North. 
Kimber stays down south, but a new war breaks out in 1922 because the London supporters of Kimber are left out because the Sabinis and Emmanuel have took over the rackets down south. So, Carl, that takes us up to the third and your latest book. Tell us about that. So I'll finish the legacy with the gang wars where there's the London allies of Kimber try to regain control. They lose in 1922. the end of 22, there's a, what might you've termed as a civil war within the Sabini gang with a family called the Cortesis. They lose. And by 1924, the Sabini gang is supreme in London. The Elephant Castle mob rule southeast London. The Hoxton mob, the Titanics, rule Hoxton. There's mobs in Bethnal Green, Dodger Mullins and his men, but the Sabinis are supreme. But something really interesting happens then. In the mid-twenties, there's some more outbreaks of violence. There's an alliance between the Bethnal Green mob and the Elephant Boys to overthrow the Sabinis. That violence there leads the Home Secretary, Sir William Johnson Hicks, to declare war against the race gangs. The flying squad is sent in by the Metropolitan Police in the racecourses in and around London. The Birmingham Police also take a very firm line on the Birmingham gang. And the racecourse authorities, the Jockey Club, sets up a racecourse security personnel organisation to stop the gangsters getting in. I think what happens is that Darby Sabini sees the writing on the wall and probably under pressure from his wife, who was really keen on their children, three daughters and a son, having a middle-class education, he moves away to Hove. Now, that's on the south coast. Lots of older books say that he continued to rule the Sabini gang. I can't see that happening and there's no evidence that he did. The Sabini gang, though, is pushed away from the race course and back into London. It has no real leader at the moment, but there are leaders in waiting. And they start to realise these gangsters that are left, the ones that have not gone legitimate like Sabini, they start to realise that they don't want to attract publicity. They don't want the police bearing down on them because the newspapers have reported another battle on the streets. So where do they move to? Soho. Towards the end of the First World War, nightclubs start to open in Soho. And by the 20s, it is clubland. Not only are there nightclubs, most of them are just a small room with a band playing in one corner, cheap furnishings and expensive booze. But they are prime targets for protection money. So too are the Spielers, the illegal gambling clubs of Soho. And another opportunity for protection for blackmailing bookmakers emerges in the late 20s. A new sport, greyhound racing, going to the dogs. So the Sabini gang moves into protection in its heartland of Clerkenwell, King's Cross and around there, but also they become the top dogs in Soho. They also extort money from restaurateurs, from cafe owners, from illegal bookmakers, from publicans, from street traders. And it's been really hard to find information about these gangs in the 20s and 30s simply because they withdraw from the public view. Who takes over the Sabini gang? I'm pretty certain it's Alf White. And the evidence is quite strong about that. In the previous gang wars, particularly with the London gangs in 1922 and in 1925, when the Elephant Boys and Bethnal Green mob joined together, they're after Alf White, not Darby Sabini. Harry Boy Sabini could also be a leader, co-leader, but he's quite young. And there's an up-and-coming Anglo-Italian gangster called Pasqualino Papa, later known as Bert Marsh. He carries on into the 1970s. 
So the gangs move back into London. And paradoxically, at the same time as the Sabini gang, in my opinion, becomes the prototype for later organised criminal gangs in London, the Birmingham gang slowly disintegrates and disappears. It's lost its leader in Billy Kimber. A man called Andrew Tui takes over, but he also goes legitimate in 1925-26. And the Birmingham police are bearing down on the gang. But there's no opportunities for gangsterism within Birmingham. Unlike London, there's no nightclubs. There's only one race course on the edge of the city and there's only three dog tracks, King's Heath, Hall Green and Perry Bar, and they're well policed. So gradually the Birmingham gang disappears and it ends up in the late 30s, lots of little groups, basically of men who had been like Peaky Blinders, the Kirbys of Summer Lane, Bill Goldsby, the Tysley Terror and the Bishop Brothers from Highgate. And they try to intimidate a little bit of petty criminality. So, for example, my granddad was an illegal bookmaker in Sparkbrook from 1922. And on one occasion, Dad told me that the Tysey Terror, Bill Goldsby's men came in, a couple of his pals, and said to my granddad, Alf, um, Bill says, sent us, granddad said, Bill who? Bill, you know, the Tysey Terror. He said he's got a non-runner from yesterday. Now, a non-runner is a bet where a horse doesn't run, so you get your money back. So he said, Bill, Bill Goldsby, how much? He says, a dollar. Five bob, 25 pence. Granite says there's no such bet. Never had it. Petty protection. Next day, one of them come back. He says, oh, Alf, don't worry. It wasn't you that Bill had the non-runner with. It was somebody else. Horrible man. His descendants have been in touch with me. On one occasion, a man called George Morgan, a really good fighter, fair man. I knew George well. He worked for us when I was a bookmaker. He had, oh, hundreds of fights George did as an amateur boxer. Come out of Hicks Street in Highgate, as did Bill Goldsby, as did my granddad Perry, my mum's dad. He said, on one occasion, Carl, I was in the pub, the Belgrave, and Bill Goldsby fell out with his bloke and he poked his cigarette into the eye of the man and blinded him. I found the newspaper report of that. My granddad Perry told me on one occasion he was in a pub in Hicks Street and he was going down the passageway and he accidentally bumped into Bill Goldsby. My granddad wasn't a fighting man. And he said, I was really scared. He said, I thought, for some reason, he left granddad alone. But these men are thugs like the Peaky Blinders, and they're petty criminals. They are not organised gangs like the Sabini gang becomes in London. And they continue into the 1930s. And they split into two gangs, but two ally gangs. The King's Cross gang, led by Alf White, but with lots of Anglo-Italians associated with it, and an Anglo-Italian gang from Clerkenwell, known as the Italian Gang. Now, in the Second World War, the Italian Gang has to hide low because Britain is at war with Italy. Darby Sabini is interned unfairly because he's no longer a gangster or a threat, and they have to release him. But the King's Cross Gang, now under the leadership of Harry White, Alf White's second son, his oldest son, Alf, died young, they take over all the rackets in Soho. But in 1947, the King's Cross Gang and Alf White are brutally overthrown by Jack Spot, Jack Comer, who was a powerful, hard man from the Jewish East End, from the Whitechapel, Spitalfields area of the East End. He'd already controlled the protection rackets there. He'd also done some heavy work supporting Jewish bookmakers and spieler owners in Leeds and Manchester. So unlike the other London gangsters, he got more of a national profile and they brutally overthrow Alf White's son, Harry. They take over in Soho in alliance with a man called Billy Hill. Now, Billy Hill is not a race gangster. 
Jack Spot is a hoodlum, a fighting man, and he wants to be like Darby Sabini and Billy Kimber. So he takes over what were known as the point-to-points. These are unsupervised race courses on farmers' lands. And what they did, Alf White and Sabini, they would go up to the local hunts, which organised the point-to-points, and say, we'll pay you X amount for where the bookmakers stand. Oh, the hunt committee's really happy about that. They get a guaranteed income. But then they'll extort money from the bookmakers. If you want to stand on that ground, you're going to have to pay us. The hunt committee don't mind. It's only the bookies have got to pay up, hasn't it? And there's law and order because nobody's going to take on Sabini or Alf White. Now, what happens is Jack Spot takes over the points of points and he parades around them like a race gang king. He also takes over what's known as the free courses. Most race courses are enclosed. You have to pay to get into the enclosures. But Brighton, Ascot, Epsom and a few in the north, there's areas which are unenclosed, which anybody can stand on for free. And bookmakers would stand up. They have to pay protection money to Jack Spot. He likes to be seen as a race gang leader in the tradition of Derby Sabini and Billy Kimber. By contrast, Billy Hill from Gamden Town is a thief, is a safe breaker, and he's a black marketeer, makes a lot of money in the Second World War. And after he comes out of prison in the late 40s, him and Jack Spot really are the kings of Soho, sharing it between them. But eventually, as all gangsters do, they fell out. And Jack Spot is violently overthrown in the mid-50s, Billy Hill then sees himself as the king of the gangsters of London, but he's cute. He sees his writing on the wall. There are new, up-and-coming, hungrier gangs, the Richardsons in South London, but particularly north of the river in the East End, the rising power of the craze. And that's where the aftermath ends, with the last of the racecourse gangsters, who sees himself as one jackspot. But in the conclusion, the afterword, I look at, the ongoing importance of Bert Marsh, of the Italian gang, and of his protégé, Alberto Di Maio, better known as Albert Dimes. He's the one who fights with Jack Spot. They knife each other, they attack each other brutally. And it is Albert Dimes, backed by Bert Marsh, and other Anglo-Italians of the revived Italian gang that join forces with Billy Hill to overthrow Jack Spot. Albert Dimes and Bert Marsh carry on through the 60s until their deaths. They're associated with criminality, Albert Dimes with a mafia leader, and they are the last people to have a bond with the origins of organised gangsters in London with the Sabini gang. Dimes wasn't in the gang, but Bert Marsh was. Dimes comes along a bit later, is associated with Bert Marsh and other Anglo-Italians. And the Italian gang drifts away in the 1960s. Why? Because these men are ageing, and Clerkenwell is changing, and the Anglo-Italians are moving out. Now, what's very interesting is that the author, Stephen Knight, again, has done this wonderful job of bringing together lots of real names and brought them into this pot, this massive magic pot called drama. So it's really important to bear in mind that behind the names that are used in the series, there are often real people, and the reality is very different. And I think it's really important to get across, particularly to youngsters, the reality that gangsterism is not glamorous, that real gangsters are not as portrayed in mafia-style films as good-hearted but flawed characters who are kind to children, caring for the elderly, respectful to women. No, they're not. They prey upon their own, they're brutal and violent, and they should not be admired. At a time when Birmingham's experiencing a great deal of gang violence on its streets, 
what lessons, if any, do you think we can take from the gangs that are presented in your books? It's really important that we look at history, not for exact lessons from the past, because the context of time and place changes. So, for example, today, drugs and the sale of drugs is a very different context to the gang warfare of the late 19th century. But there are some leads that we can take from the past. First of all, it would be a calumny on the poor to say that because somebody is poor, they become a criminal. But backstreet gangs don't operate in middle-class areas. They operate in poorer areas. So there is a connection with poverty, and we need to understand that. There's also a connection with masculinity, the idea that I'm harder because I've got nothing else to be proud of. So we need to look at masculinity and to turn it into something more positive rather than a negative force. We need to understand that the gangs disappeared in Birmingham because of the development of facilities for them. Rudimentary though those facilities were, football clubs, in churches and chapels, boxing clubs, the pictures. So why is it now that we see that facilities for the youth are being cut back massively? Actually, we should be invested in the youth. And what we should really be investing in, in my opinion, is young men who've been involved in gangs, who've come through it and have the experience, the understanding and the empathy to work with young people. Let's value them and not the outsiders who are always brought in as professionals who know best. Now, I'm not saying we don't need professionals, but we really need the young men and young women who understand gang violence and the pressures, the peer pressures that are brought upon many youngsters in the more deprived neighbourhoods of our country. So I think it's not one solution. It's a number of things coming together. Education is very important. Support for families is very important. Facilities for youth are very important. Yes, stronger policing where necessary and sentencing, but we've also got to invest positively in poorer neighbourhoods. Carl, thank you for a brilliant and really fascinating insight into the gangs of the past and perhaps some of the lessons we can learn for the future and for current Birmingham. Thank you, Mike. Carl Chin's latest book, Peaky Blinders, The Aftermath, is now available in bookshops and from Amazon. You can learn more about the Peaky Blinders in our two films, The Real Peaky Blinders and The Story of Real Peaky Blinders Continues, The Racecourse Wars, already viewed more than two million times. You can find them and many more fascinating films at our website, www.historywm.com. <laughs>